0: Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.
1: Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Houndsom.
2: I'm Charlotte Bond.
1: And I'm Megan Lee. Here on Breaking the Glass Slipper, we regularly discuss how female characters in science fiction, fantasy and horror are depicted on screen. From the infamous bikini armour to simply being absent from male-centric narratives, women have had their fair share of problematic portrayals. But is the tide turning? Joining us to help answer this question is award-winning actor and director Kate Madison. So Kate, would you like to introduce yourself to our
3: listeners? Sure. Yes. Um, Hello, everyone. Yeah, I'm Kate Madison. Um, And uh, yeah, you pretty much nailed it. I've been an actor. I write, I direct, I produce. I'm a bit of a jack of all trades. I tried my hand at various things and I love the creative arts.
1: Yay. (laughs) And you also directed um, Born of Hope, which is a pretty famous fan
3: film of um, Lord of the Rings. Yes, that was like my first big venture into crazy, uh, ambitious filmmaking. Um, and uh, yes, it's now been online for 10 years and it's got over 50 million views or something crazy. It's pretty amazing. Oh, well, I really enjoyed it. So uh,
1: <laughs> I hadn't come across it before. So it's obviously finding a new
3: audience um, every yeah, year. Yeah, it's finds yeah, absolutely. It's so it's so amazing that although it's been online so long, people are discovering it daily, really, and just going, well, how did I not know about this? It's amazing. This is a That's good thing. Awesome. This is a good thing for us, especially in the
1: publishing world where, you know, new books are published every month, it seems, and I just can't mm. keep up with <laughs> all the new releases. Yeah, absolutely. Good to have some staying power. Um, so anyway, moving on. Um. So I was looking kind of like at the TV Tropes kind of website, which has got a really lot, a lot of really good stuff on kind of gender and, and women. Um, and, uh, there's a one particular one, which is probably the most famous trope of all, which is called, um, men act and women are where male characters are described as being defined more by their actions, uh, than their personalities or appearances. That female characters, on the other hand, are defined by their personalities and appearances, but not on their actions. And if they are defined by their actions, they're often accused of being a Mary Sue. So I'm, I'm just asking everyone, really, do we think perhaps that this most famous of double standards is still being upheld in contemporary film and television? Just looking
0: at things like, you know, the superhero films, and even if you just look at the posters for Avengers, you just... You see it in the costume design, in the poses they're made to, you know, stay in for the posters and things like that. It just,
2: it's, yeah, it's definitely still there. Well, I was thinking about The Walking Dead, which I watched for many series, um, but not quite to the end. And I did find that the women in that were given an awful lot more to do. They gave, they were given as many storylines as the men um, it wasn't just about looks and personality. There was there was plenty to go around with everybody. But I don't know whether that's because, um, A, there was more women, um, so it was better balanced than perhaps some of these fancy things where you have a couple of men and a woman, or whether it was just because it's a TV series. They obviously have more time to go into that than they maybe do in a two-hour film. I don't know if that makes a difference at all. I
0: would say that if they have enough time in a film to go into more depth for the male characters, they ought to do the same for the female ones.
3: I think it, it's, um, it's an interesting one. It, like, I think sometimes the, the style of the film makes a difference too. As you said, the, the sort of superhero ones, especially with the sort of tight costumes and, and poses is more, is definitely sort of, uh, it's harder to do, even though, I mean, I think they did a, a good job with Wonder Woman and made her cool action hero thing, but, obviously there's still an element of like she still has to look really cool and beautiful at the same time and have and wear the the evening gowns while carrying a sword in her back and things so it's um it's finding that happy balance but it's really hard when it's so ingrained that's I think the big problem
0: yeah the the costumes is an interesting one from when you look at like characters who fight or they're very physical it was actually one thing that I quite liked about buffy which always comes up when we're talking because we all love buffy buffy um (laughs) (laughs) the fact that she used to wear trousers and or uh, i always remembered one uh the episode in season seven where she's going out on a date with um i'm gonna forget his character's name but db woodside (laughs) um and They're accosted by vampires and she's wearing, because she's on a date, so she's wearing a dress and she just quickly rips the dress so that she's got enough movement for her legs. Um, And I did like that in the sense that it, you know, made a point about, you know, clothing being practical rather than necessarily just for titillation.
1: Mm.
3: Yeah, although, to, to be fair, if you rip a dress, you're probably also adding that titillation a little bit, aren't you? Sort of going, oh, look, now she's got a really ripped all sort of like right up the leg dress.
0: <laughs> that is true. I, yeah, I'll give you that. Uh, in, in the uh, p- particular moment I'm thinking of, I don't think it ha- has quite that effect, um, but certainly not all the uh, <laughs> the other one I'm thinking of is, say, Captain Kirk when he would rip his shirt just to the top of his girdle. Um, it's not quite
1: like that either. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so what do we see fairly regularly on television at the moment and in film? I mean, what sort of roles are women typically given? I mean, and maybe is this different from roles that they've been given in the past? Are we seeing women taking centre stage a bit more often? In Because classic fantasy and science fiction does tend to be a little bit more kind of tropey when it comes to giving women their own narratives?
3: I recently watched The Witcher, um, and I personally think that they did a pretty good job in that. There is some issues of the, you know, uh, I think it's the very first episode, there's a lot of titillation stuff going on, which is sort of done to set up that a certain character is... A bit of a dick. <laughs> um and and but it it was a bit of a, a roll your eyes moment um for me. Um and uh at least more because they they definitely still put in a, a bunch of, you know, nudity and things in that show um playing I feel like on the we're used to it now with Game of Thrones that that's what you get with fantasy. Um, which I am not a big fan of, um, but um, most of the time I was. I think maybe I was going to say most of the time I was able to to deal with. It was okay, but it could have also been that you go, oh, "I am used to this now. This is what this show does." Moving on, kind of thing. But that aside, I do also think they did do a good job of of the characters in that, in the sense that the you know essentially, although you think of The Witcher as um, Garrow, it, it's not really his show. It's the the girls really do, I think, take centre stage almost more than him. Like they're more interesting characters to a certain degree. Yeah, I would agree. You know, yeah. So uh, although they confused people with their timeline things, I think what uh, they were trying to do with um, stretching those timelines around to, to make those characters, uh series character, for example, just – More center stage uh, and not sort of pushed into a small thing just because her storyline is over a quicker time period. So I liked what they did with that, and I don't know, like you know, who who sort of gave the "we need more tits" in this type call, but um, I think they balanced that well with making sure that the characters felt more rounded than just there for looks alone and things.
1: I think it's really interesting that I'm getting this like behind the scenes, almost like a satire of like, you know, a male director and a female director having an argument over like, okay, so I want to put tits in, but okay, well, you can have like one tit, but then I need serious female agency. (laughs) And it's like some kind of dialogue (laughs) being played off one against the other, like the fact that we're still... You know, we've we've clearly, like, as we're establishing, we've come some way, um, you know, towards recognising that there are problematic elements with featuring women in this way. But, you know, we've just said that these two characters are more compelling than the central character, i.e. the Witcher. So that's something that's really interesting to consider as well. Like we're actually wanting to, we're possibly more invested in these women's stories than we are in another male hero narrative, or in this case, anti-hero
3: narrative. I know that from, from Mike's experience of uh, when writing and things, uh, the thing that I find really interesting is even, you know, obviously coming from a female perspective and writing a f- uh, for a female part and things that I, I've, still find it sometimes difficult to make sure i'm putting in enough sometimes agency for the characters but also just generally enough female roles like the tendency seems to be to surround the character with these other people but they are often coming out as male characters and i don't know where that comes from if you know what i mean it's if it's because of that's what you're used to or If it's the dynamics between male and female that means it's sort of a a more interesting dynamic than having um, a group of women, I don't, I don't know because I've seen it done really well. But it's interesting that um, that I have to catch myself sometimes trying to sort of go, "Well, hold on, there's there's still not many. This is a female-led show, for example, and, and I haven't put in. She's got a friend who says a few lines, you know, so." It is something that's sort of quite deep, ingrained, I think.
1: Oh, I completely agree. And, you know, as a writer myself, there's, I mean, even today, I was writing something and had written a male guard in again. And I'm like, why mm. does it have to be a man? I was like, well, actually, this male guard is particularly stupid. So let's maybe make it a man <laughs> um, in the nicest possible <laughs> way. Um, but yeah, like, you know, you just, there's, I think it's in some kind of, innate narrative that we are kind of spoon fed as children. And then we grow up and it is seeing it reinforced in our media, like seeing it every day in schools, uh, you know, going home, seeing it in magazines that we buy in the television programs that we tune on into, uh, we see it in, in shops and books and, and, and like the whole kind of, I feel like there's this whole, uh, quite sinister, like web that, puts its feelers through everything. And that's kind of why we started this podcast really in the first place, wasn't it? Because we thought, well, you know, like enough is enough. We think we should be talking about women more and we think we should maybe be highlighting some of the problems that, you know, aren't being discussed so openly.
3: Yeah. It is interesting. Like uh, how I've found as well, like pulling, putting, uh, like changing the idea of a character. Like if a male character does a certain thing, how it's perceived over uh, with the kind of the exact same thing done by a female character. Like um, we've had a, a lot of sort of things of trying to figure out like you, this character needs enough agency to sort of be driving the story forward or whatever, but you also want them to show to, to get into get themselves into trouble or whatever, and maybe need help. But you know, if a, if a male character gets into trouble and needs sort of, rescuing or help they it shows a bit of a sort of weakness and it shows that they're flawed and that sort of thing but this the same sort of thing of just I don't know someone getting caught in a ditch or something and they can't get out and needs rescuing. the female character looks like a damsel in distress whereas the male character it strengthens them in a weird way you know and how to get those the same get the same thing in the people's heads I mean, how you need to change what is happening to Get that same effect because just changing the gender won't necessarily get the same effect because we interpret it differently. Oh yeah, completely agree. Um, we have totally. We I
1: think we just approach situations um, with gender with very kind of already prescribed narratives in our head, and so if you know a male character is in a ditch and needs rescuing, we do approach that in a, in fact, maybe, I think, as you've said, you know, we, that would raise an awful lot more questions about their vulnerability than it would be if a woman just slid into a ditch and did the whole damsel thing. Cause we're so familiar with that and people would be, it would cause less thought about that particular character. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, another thing when it
0: comes to always writing male characters or, you know, that being the default, I think if I'm being really cynical, which I usually am, it does feel like, you know, you can have the air quotes strong female character, but then to make up for that, to to make it okay that we're putting that woman front and center, we have to surround her by with men because you can't have her and
3: then other women as well. It just it's too much. Yeah, I know I can see what you mean. It is sort of um and the thing is I think we we do like uh, there is that thing of of being drawn to different uh, leads, and that uh, I think, I, I think I remember reading this or something. I don't know, but that um, that we all sort of are drawn more to the male lead, whether we're female or male, to a certain degree. And this might be an old thing, and this might be because that's what we're used to. But you, I, you still do hear guys sort of. Saying, oh, I don't know whether I want that's that feels like a that's a a girly movie or whatever because it's got a female lead in it, sort of thing. I, and I it might have changed a lot more now that we've got things like Star Wars and uh, and Witcher and and there so many shows and so many things with female leads uh, that it might have have started to be pushed to one side a bit more and a bit more open as not just this is a female show, this is a male show, but it definitely used to be the case.
1: Yeah, well, I think that leads really quite nicely on to, you know, we were talking about the fact that the current desire for diversity in science fiction and fantasy and horror, in genre in general, um, has stemmed in a large part from historically male-centric, white and heteronormative narratives. So did, I mean, I, I think, Clearly, we've actually you've kind of answered this question in a way that did awareness of this bias influence you when you were creating Ren? Because clearly, I mean, I think there must be something there that we've already touched on that you know that fantasy, in particular, has you know has followed quite a formulaic kind of narrative when it comes to assigning a particular character to a a male or a female. When you set out to create the character of Ren, were these kind of ideas in your head already? Did you want to? deliberately say, look, I want
3: to make a woman the hero of my narrative. So yeah, I definitely did that. The latter part, definitely. I think coming at it as a female and, and, uh, you know, as a big fan of Robin Hood and those sort of like kind of cool characters that that you sort of want to follow, I, I, I didn't, weirdly, I didn't necessarily sort of think it odd to have a female as that role. But as you say, there's, there's actually stuff that I now look back on and stuff and go, there was no doubt about like the mentor being a man and, and the, you know, and, and things like that. And, and even like, w- I, I do remember a sort of debating, um, you know, whether her, whether she was going to have a brother or a sister. And I think it was a, a brother, but we, we did actually, I think it was a brother when we wrote it, but we did audition, uh, both boys and girls, but, there was also an element of going, we look at this different, like if she has a little brother that she's looking after as opposed to a little sister, how does that affect the psychology of seeing that? Like, cause it definitely changes the way you think about those characters, or at least it felt like in my head that it it would change the dynamics slightly, but it's so weird that, uh, yeah, that, everything's sort of set in stone it's only the female lead is probably just comes from the fact that you know I would love to be those sort of characters and I I, so I write from what I think would be cool and what I aspire to and stuff so but but when it comes to writing lots of the other characters around there yeah that doesn't sort of come out as much
2: I thought it was really interesting what you were saying just now about auditioning boys and girls for the sibling role because when you think about it, when you think of all the people in wren 's life, there are quite a few men within the narrative, certainly in yeah. the first episode and she does have a very caring role or a reciprocal role with all of them so she you know she 's looking after her father she 's looking after her brother um, she 's trading stuff with the guy in the woods she 's trading stuff with the guy in the market so although she is sort of a woman surrounded by men, she is got a really strong role with each of them and it's a very sort of positive role as well i thought that was quite interesting the way you you kind of work that in it was nicely subtle
3: cool no that's great because because it's interesting sort of like looking at it now as well and going She is very mothery she's a mothery figure we were talking we were sort of um looking we're doing some casting at the moment and um and talking to those actors about what they see from ren and things and you realize how or i realize how trying to make her a that strong i know it's, it's so cliche to say strong character because that's not really it's so vague but you know the, the the main sort of drive and yet she still has that mothering instinct in a way to look after her brother and her, her and her dad and and all the people around and so she's and hopefully it means we can we can work in a way to have someone who is out there and driving things but using that mothering instinct almost because I think that's going to come into play as, as we go forward. You know, you can become the leader of a people but through a sort of like that sort of instinct almost as well to look after your community, your home, your family, whatever. So I think some of her s- strength comes from that really.
1: It's really interesting because it plays in so well to, um, the episode we've just uh, published today, which is a discussion about the role of the badass and, or kick-ass badass, whatever term you like, um, you know, in saying that we've kind of had enough of a narrative of violence and that Mm. why can't a badass character actually use love and compassion and exactly that those kind of mothering traits to be a hero and to stand up for what they believe in and to right wrongs. Why do we, why is this desire like to have somebody who turns to violence as the first option? And especially to see that, being kind of transplanted from men into women, which is something we've long kind of discussed this, like this kind of bleeding over of masculine traditionally or kind of, yeah, very traditional masculine traits onto women instead of allowing women to speak for themselves. And so I really like that idea that, you know, that she can be a hero through her desire to build a community um, and to, to actually create like a personal bond with, with everybody on an individual level. I think that's actually a particular, particularly feminine trait, um, which mm. should be nice to see more of in kind of epic fantasy.
0: Can I, again, play devil's advocate? <laughs> um, it's just, it's interesting when we're talking about, you know, creating a community or, you know, being a leader and, and you know, you are talking about this as kind of um, coming from a mothering sort of perspective. But historically, a lot of leaders and and people who have gone on to build communities have been men, or at least those are the stories that we're told. And it's interesting that you know even the four of us would look at a male doing those same kinds of things and not get the same kind of will not think of it in the similar kind of way, even if they're. Their behaviors or the things that are driving them are actually a very similar thing. You know, a man can be very much, you know, in the role of a protector, but you know, it's the way that we kind of talk about this kind of if it's a, a female doing the the role of protecting, it's it's a mothering thing, and that's somehow very different. I don't really have an answer to that. I just thought it was an interesting thing to point out.
3: <laughs> yeah,
0: no,
2: totally. I was thinking exactly the same thing, actually. I was, in particular, I was thinking of the Matrix when they reveal to Neo that he's the one who is going to sort of unite everyone, and they talk about how previously all of his, all of the previous um, chosen ones had very general love for the community and the world and were motivated by that, um, but he has very specific love because he's in love with Trinity and he wants to save the world for her, really. And thinking about the whole idea of kings loving their people and wanting to save their people it's just something you automatically accept as part of certain heroes that they do have this love but when it comes to being a woman you do naturally find yourself falling into that idea of mothering because that's usually when women have specific or general love it's either specific for a child or it is a general oh I'm a a motherly kind of person so obviously that's how I i feel about everyone compared to someone who goes oh well i'm naturally a leader and a king and therefore i care for my people because that's what you we're used to seeing in both fiction and history
3: part of me sort of like will often think i i often will will not necessarily think though that the 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 male leader the king or whatever actually uh and maybe this is because again this is often how it's portrayed that they're not they're not necessarily doing it for the love of their people. They're doing it for power and glory and, you know, and those sort of things. Or at least, again, that's that would be how I would in, often think of a male leader potentially over maybe a female leader. I would sort of say, if you even look at like, I do not like looking at politics, but say, you know, I'm much more drawn to, uh, you know, the prime minister, is it prime minister of, of New Zealand who's female and seem like the, the thing you get from her is this ca- properly caring about her people over an a male leader who is more about the glory of the country or more glory of this or whatever. It doesn't come across the same compassionate way. And that's not always the case. It depends on the leaders. But, you know, if, if first glance that would come across for me a little.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point visual representation is key to the medium of film and like particularly when it comes to science fiction and fantasy there's been a real problem in the way it visually depicts women so as i was saying like the the superhero posters and the women sort of are jutting their butts out and they have like tiny little costumes and you know enormous breasts that are you know pumped up and and pushed up and so on are we moving away from that Uh, are we getting different kinds of representation I mean the you mentioned Wonder Woman and there was uh, a thing going around at the time when the film came out showing like the the difference of like what the Amazon characters were wearing in the film directed by a woman versus the one directed by a man Oh, I saw that. Yeah, it was quite, um, you take it back and you're like, what just, really? Like it 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 really does, you can see the difference um, and it's crazy. Despite the fact that both of them are quite skimpy outfits, they're still basically bikini armour, but even so, there's a real difference. One of them seems far more um, about practicality than it does uh, about just titillation. So there is that, but I, I mean, I would say personally, I don't see it changing all that much. There's still, you know, a lot of nudity like in The Witcher and, you know, again, and this is not just because I would like to see more of it, but, you know, it's always the women who are naked. I'd like to see more male nudity, you know, we see all the bits of the women, Mm -hmm. but where are my penises at? So (laughs) all I'm saying, That
1: was classic, Meg.
3: <laughs> Where my penises
1: at? <laughs> Tagline for the episode.
3: <laughs> yeah, I've just just googled that picture. Uh, it's yeah, it is interesting. Such a difference. Like they are proper bikinis, aren't they? Going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, it. Yeah. I. I mean, it, it's. It is. I think. I do think there is. Um. There is a specific thing about those sort of like superhero things because they're so heightened like everyone is a superhuman you know uh, and so they also are super hot and super this and super that so i think those are um it would obviously be great to pull them them away but because they're such a blockbuster style things they're just trying to get people through the door and uh, and so they they push it to the limit that they can and until people stop going because uh, of, or uh, don't care so much. Don't go because the poster has the big tits and stuff. Then like it's, it's, it's us to a certain degree that needs change, which is so hard because, you know, the whole reason why this works is it, it pulls on, you know, the, the deepest sort of stuff about human nature. Um, I, yeah, I, re- I remember this is this is old, but like in a similar kind of way. Um, back when they made, uh, the King Arthur movie. This is an old King Arthur movie, though. Hold on, <laughs> with the Clive Owen and Kira Knightley, and and the post like showing the picture of her before the poster was done, and how they pulled her b- boobs yep. out to give her boobs and stuff, you know. And it's that kind of thing that you know we need to stop caring about it as much or, you know, why can she not just look badass there? Why does she need to have that, the boob shape thing going on? But it's, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, I think you hopefully counteract that a little bit by having movies like Little Women where luckily nobody has their tits out and stuff. So, but at the same time, you're not probably getting males coming through the door to see that because they're like, that's a chick flick.
2: I was thinking about earlier when we mentioned Game of Thrones, and obviously Gwendolyn Christie is nicely dressed up as uh, any other knight, and you know a lot of the women wear sort of high neck stuff. But it all, suppose, balances out because you do see nudity in that, so there's less kind of titillation, (laughs) less titillation, and more tits basically. (laughs) So you've got the whole idea that they're all going around in relatively straightforward, simple armor. I mean, I know Daenerys has obviously got you know a little bit of boob wrapping and that's about it but she is in a very hot country up in the north and whatever they're all wrapped up in furs and everything like that it's not you know over the top they have genuinely thought about relevant things for different people and in king's landing there's not a lot of flesh showing that kind of thing but (laughs) that then balance out the epic nudity that you don't perhaps get in something like lord of the rings where everybody's very sedately dressed and there are no boobs on show at all so
3: Mm, yeah i think for i I found And again, like I would have to sort of rewatch to really know, but I feel like something like Game of Thrones toned, like it calmed down as the seasons went on. Um, And again, I feel like that's possibly like we need to get people through the door and we'd have to therefore show something to get them through the door and that's all these tits. Once people were hooked for other reasons, then – and possibly because the uh, actors, agents were able to go, well, you've got her now and uh, she's not going to do this anymore. They were able to sort of like pull back on on how raunchy the show was in that sense. I think, yeah, it's nice when they don't have to do it all the time and it is kind of crazy how many shows do do it. I, I just think it's, it's interesting how like... For me, it would be like we we can understand what's going on without seeing a full, uh, you know, people fully tending to have sex. And for example, but that it's a personal opinion. I'm assuming everyone else likes it, which is why it's used a lot. But like, um, I just find it interesting that uh, people can't seem to use imagination, or at least like it's that thing of like, well, we don't need that. This doesn't advance the story. Specifically, to see this, you know, mm. it's often used.
0: Interesting that you mention Lord of the Rings. So, uh, Charlotte and Lucy know that I am not a fan <laughs> of Lord of the Rings, um, of the books. We are, though. Uh, yeah, they are. Uh, <laughs> uh, of the books or of the films. But, uh, and I think there's, you know, there's a lot of problematic elements to Tolkien, but one of the things about those films in particular is that you don't get the the same kind of titillation of women as you do in other fantasy films that we've sort of mentioned, you know, all the women there, as you say, are sort of dressed in a more sedate manner. They're not, you know, in tiny little bikinis or what's whatever. Um, and similarly, I suppose for, for quite a few of the old sort of eighties fantasy films that we have a, a real love for, so even like Princess Bride, she's not, you know, she's never naked or anything like that. So um, it's interesting that maybe it kind of does depend on the kind of the subgenre within those, within the the genre fiction.
1: Do you think it's a Western thing as well um, that it's peculiarly? Because I I just I mean like watching a couple of like Chinese dramas and I know the culture is very different um, around nudity anyway, but there's just so little flesh on display that it's actually almost just jumps out at you because you're so used to seeing casual nudity We're in the, well, I just feel like we are all, it's all over Netflix, um, in the West and it's just, doesn't seem to be, you know, I just wonder whether how much of this is a kind of like, you know, cultural divide as much as it is
3: a gender divide, that, that makes sense to me because obviously, yeah, we, and we forget, uh, you know, without watching other things or visiting other countries or learning, you, you don't sort of realize the differences. I guess the, the problem is like, it's hard to go back the other way. Um, like it's always, always unlikely that it's the same, you know, whether it's, you know, a swear word that becomes norm, you just invent a new swear word. And the thing with, with this sort of thing is like, where does the line gets drawn before you end up with full porn on on film, if you know what I mean. If we beca- if it becomes so normal, I guess, like how how easy is it to go back the other way? From
0: what I understand, and I don't know the the whole ins and outs, so people will probably pull holes in this, but um, I believe that some of the you know the things that then developed into hentai, but you know, and just in terms of having you know the up the shot, uh, upskirt shots, um, and things like that in anime was uh, because you know they had such strict rules about what they could and couldn't do with live actors. So they kind of got their titillation in animated form um, for a lot of the Japanese stuff, which which is interesting. So in in the cultural sense of we don't show this in sort of you know the realist things, but. Uh, if it's animated, you know, go for your life. Have have fun. Have tentacles and all sorts of very odd things going on. And
3: that's cool. I don't I don't know much about that myself, but yeah, it makes it makes sense that, that things come from different areas and the way different cultures do things. Shall we move on and talk about um the fact that uh, well, we haven't really talked
1: about allegory very much at the moment, but fantasy is generally kind of well known as a really good arena to explore kind of real world issues um, from a different and potentially safe perspective um so how do you feel like this has been done well in the past i mean I mean, there's been lots of arguments about how you know the lord of the rings is is supremely allegorical probably not quite as much as narnia which is i have a funny mini story about this when i was 14 i read the chronicles of narnia and i thought like, they were the most amazing books ever and when i told my mum about how wonderful they were uh she said oh do you you do realize the whole thing is just christian allegory And I was like, how dare you? (laughs) How could you say that about Aslan, the Jesus lion? I mean, (laughs) like it's the sort of, but but things like this, like over time you begin, you know, I began to see, I've read a lot of fantasy as a teenager and I began to see that, yeah, it's a really great vehicle for talking about stuff that we might find difficult to address. Like if it was in a real world setting um so i mean do you feel that fantasy is a really good
3: vehicle for for kind of talking about real life issues yeah i mean personally i i mean i love the fantasy genre or any sort of like pulling something out of the the real world but doesn't mean you can't say real world stuff um it's just the setting that it's in and yeah in that same way like you know, you can talk about how uh, people have problem with estranged family, or you know, like things that we we would experience, and just you you can just place it instead of it being on a council estate in Bristol. It's it's just set in a in a different setting, but it it's still stuff people can relate to because it's it can still be real stories if you know what I mean just the setting different I mean to a certain degree a bit more than probably a a superhero movie for example that might be set in the real world but clearly is about people who are not like us and so it's harder to relate to whereas you know you set it in a fantasy setting and it's still you know Lord of the Rings for example is, is a story about friendship and you know doing what's right and all that sort of stuff and and things that that we can all sort of relate to, even if we can't relate to taking a ring to a volcano and throwing it in. It's it's uh, the fundamentals when you dive down into what the real story is. Um, those are all sort of relatable and and real things.
1: So, yeah, no, I want to say, so because we're kind of talking about real world um, issues, um, I felt like the effects of prejudice um, on a, a small community is a really big part of Wren. So does your exploration of this theme reflect a real world discussion that you feel needs to take place in our society? I mean, it does, the whole talk about, um, you know, bias and prejudice in, particularly racial prejudice in society is really like very prevalent. It's a very hot topic right now and people are talking a lot about it. And I feel like this is where fantasy could really come in to actually take this topic and put it in a different setting, and maybe get people who might otherwise be closed to debate to actually sit up and listen.
3: I don't think it was a conscious decision, but it possibly was something from a, that was subconsciously sort of worked its way in, especially now as we're as we're looking at new, you know, where where the story's gonna go from here, you know, the world has changed a bit more in the last few years. So the whole Brexit thing and, you know, all this sort of stuff, there's so much that's you know, weirdly, we're we're in a world now where we can connect with people all over the place, and yet we we're so connected in some ways and then so pulling apart in others. I think exploring that that sort of idea of inclusion and community and prejudice and truths that are not so true. Um, you know, rumors spread, uh, that people believe in and things that are not reality.
1: Fake news.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's all, um, it's all very relevant right now. And so it's, it definitely makes sense to try and point those out. Cause I, I think it, yeah, as you say, when, if you just do it in the normal world, if you just did a, a drama about it, which, you know, people can do, but people can feel like it's preachy that they're trying to, oh, they're just trying to tell me this is wrong, blah, 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 or they believe one side or the other because it seems to, it's too close to home. Whereas, yeah, as soon as you are able to move it to um to a different world completely, pretty much, you can look at it differently. It doesn't, it's not close enough that, oh, they're not talking Brexit or something, but they're talking about not liking someone who's different, for example.
1: Yeah, we get quite a lot of that in fantasy, actually, that very often that there's um someone who is set apart from society for whatever reasons. And sometimes they are the exile and sometimes they are the chosen one. Um, but it's definitely a this kind of idea of difference is is something fantasy is really kind of drawn to as a genre.
3: Yeah, I think and and it's probably from that very reason that it's easier to explore it to a certain degree when you can move those people to a different place. We like exploring that thing of it's is either there's there's both the the looking at um the problems of uh people being excluded but there's also the sort of the almost the desire to be different and a chosen one you know to not just be one of ev- like ev- someone like everybody else. I think that's what draws us to these characters that pe- people don't often feel like they fit into society in some way because they believe something differently and the, they can escape to their fantasy world where that difference makes them special and and they can uh, and they can actually do great things because they're different
1: this is a great time to kind of ask you about, since we're talking about characters and we've really, um, we're very lucky to have you on the show because we don't talk to very many directors and actually don't think we've ever had have, have an actor either on, especially an actor director combination, which is pretty cool. Um, we have a lot of writers and I'm a writer. We have many, many writers. So we talk to writers a lot about creating characters and how they bring people to life. Um, but like, I just wanted to ask you about kind of how you approach characterization. Like, it, is it different um, approaching? Because you've obviously got experience of acting as well. Um, so is that a different kind of approach um, than you would use as a director?
3: Yeah, as you say, have, having the experience as an actor is helpful because I can try and I can find it. it's hopefully easier for me to explain to the other actors what I'm trying to get from them hopefully without line reading to them and do, doing anything bad like that. I, yeah, I mean, I've been quite lucky as well that I've often um, written or been involved in writing the projects as well. So I'm able to sort of like pull from all of those sort of things. And then through discussions with the the actors as well, we can all sort of um, hone in on exactly how that character is, what is driving them So I, I mean, I, one of the things I I love about directing is you, you, you're pulling the stuff off the page, but with the actor who is then bringing life to that character. And I'm, some of the time I just, I'm just able to sit back and watch it all happen because they just, uh, and I'm just there to help guide and nudge and, um, and encourage the perfect performances really.
1: I think it's pretty cool that you, um, did acting alongside directing in Born of
3: Hope was that did that pre- present a particular challenge it did it was uh, it was an interesting one because for so long i we were working on Born of Hope uh going back and forth with scripting and things and i had been working on it for a, probably a number of years before we were anywhere c- close and i got to a stage where i realized that i was going to potentially finish the project and go oh that was great that's exactly the sort of project i'd love to have been in <laughs> and so I remember talking to um, Paula, who was helping write, and uh, and we sort of I was like, could we just put in a small character, you know, just so, so something, so I can just so I can do something, and then that character just organically grew into this very major part, and meant that I needed to be on camera a bit more than I was originally thinking. So I did spend a lot of that film. Um, directing in full costume and wig and whatever, sometimes w- and then not even getting on camera because I was like, J- I just need to be ready just in case I need to be on camera for this. It was interesting. I basically I had I had a member of the team who I I'm not really sure what what they're so that, I mean essentially assist. They were an assistant director, but not an assistant director as it's known in in film. Uh, they would they were basically my eyes, so that when I was on camera, they Knew what I was trying to get, and I could trust that they they would get what was needed. Some of the time, I'd I'd come and look at footage and check, but a lot of the time, I was able to to trust that that what was what was being got was what I wanted because I'd had this discussion with my sort of assistant, essentially, who was able to help with that. Because there was a number of times, like I mean, spoilers, but it's been out ten years. Like my character uh, doesn't survive to the end of the movie, and I remember for that sort of thing it was i there was a lot going on we were it was and the day was sort of drawing on we had a lot of extras we had a lot of stuff i i was sitting on set trying to direct people with a stand-in for me uh, so that we could get certain shots while my wig was being rigged while everything else was going on and then suddenly jumping in and having to to do a dramatic death scene and i i remember yeah, just lying there while doing the scene going, Oh, I haven't even made a decision of, am I going to shut my eyes at the end or not? (laughs) For example, and just like, just having to go for it. But yeah, having, I think if you're, you need that extra set of eyes because, uh, you, you need someone you can trust who is gonna keep that vision for you and, uh, and be able to do that. But, uh, it was it was a, a big challenge, and uh, I decided with with Ren at least for season one that I would maybe hold off on the acting, just f- focus on the directing and bring the acting in later if uh, if the part came up. But
1: it's really fascinating to hear that, and it sounds very much like you know when you say um, you know I need an extra pair of eyes. It sounds very much like an editor and how I see my editor. It's kind of because you sometimes yeah. get sucked into the story and it's nice to have someone to say look no stay stay on track you know you were kind of right not to to do that and to so yeah it's um it's really interesting though to have those two dual experiences.
0: My question is basically because we as Lucy mentioned we talk to writers generally and obviously you do write um as well as direct and act but for us a lot of our discussions are around writing prose, writing novels, short stories. And in that kind of writing, it's, I think, much easier to get inside the head of a character, or at least, you know, to get that across to the reader. Whereas in visual mediums, it's much harder to get kind of what the thoughts of a character, what they're actually thinking. You kind of more rely on the visual. So, you know, the cues of whether or not they're smirking or laughing at something. You don't know what's going on inside their heads. And I was just wondering how you try to, or, or how you work around that in creating a character with a lot of depth who you can kind of see inside to their motivations when you don't have the ability to sort of actually spell out what it is that they're
3: thinking. It's trying to, to have yeah, have the actions speak for them as much as possible. But at the same time, um, there's, I, I find I, sometimes when I write in the scripts, I actually write stuff that you probably shouldn't really be writing to try and help give the, the actor an idea of what I'm thinking that they're thinking, if you know what I mean? So that when they're not saying anything, they know where their mind is at. And so they can, they can bring that. And hopefully through their expressions and, and things you can, the audience can see some of those thoughts, but obviously, yeah, without putting a, a voiceover saying, I was thinking this it's, which is never sometimes works, but it is much harder to do. And I, I know, interestingly, I read the Hunger Games books after watching the movies and suddenly felt much more interested in the character having been in their head more than than in the movie and it is a is an interesting challenge to really pull those thoughts and feelings out so it's the the more the more discussions with the actors on you know history like this triggers this memory this is because of this can all really help to um to hint at that and we we like to i like in in ren to we try and sort of hint at backstory things or just world things without delving into huge exposition just so that the audience can start getting a glimpse and start putting those pieces together and i think that that helps as well because they're like oh what was that about oh clearly they're thinking about something there what why why did that word make them you know react that way or whatever
0: yeah it's really interesting
2: Now, Kate, creating professional and ambitious films on a low budget is a speciality of yours. And some might say that it's a drawback that you can't have a huge CGI army of orcs besieging the the village or something like that. But personally, I think a, a lack of CGI within a film makes directors and writers and actors think a lot more about how they're going to build up the action and the characters rather than relying on cgi i mean do you think that expensive cgi has become a crutch that big budget films lean on a bit too much at the expense of say characterization and plot
3: i think again if we look at superhero movies (laughs) i guess uh they those definitely seem to I'm not a huge fan of superhero movies. I get a bit bored of them. Um, and and I think one of those reasons is because, you know, the last 20 or 30 minutes is often just, let's smash through this whole city, you know, show how we can destroy all these buildings. And it gets a bit dull because, you you know, if you're seeing a, a fight, you want to see the jeopardy of the char- characters. You don't care. Well, I don't care whether or not they smash through 10 buildings or five, you know, so for certain films, definitely. When CGI is hidden, uh, or at least not uh, being flaunted so that you're not thinking about it, then it can be an incredible tool. And yeah, as I've not had that luxury to use it very often, and possibly could be using it more, but just to, to world build and things. So yeah, it, with Born of Hope and with Ren, I've I've known the limitation, much as I, I try not to let the limitations of budget and things squash any creativity, I do think I'm probably aware enough to go, okay, I can't do those big battles necessarily. So, but let's, let's pull down, like just zoom in on say that, that big fight or that whatever and go, well, who is, what is the story behind this one character or these few characters? Because that is, as you said, that is the story. If you if you're just looking at a, a bunch of soldiers clashing in an uh, in a battle, it's not engaging. What's engaging is when you when you go in and you see your lead character like fighting for their life. It's worth learning how to work without it. That's for sure. Um, it's it's one of those things. Is it it's it can be brilliant if you used in the right way, but not relying on it as your story because it isn't your story. It enhances your story.
2: I have to say that when I get bored in a film, I do play Spot the CGI character. <laughs>
3: yeah. It's like, that guy's walking over there. He's not hit anyone. He's fallen over.
2: I really miss the era when they used to make Muppets and like Labyrinth and Star Wars, mm-hmm. and they all had like actual physical creatures that you could talk and interact with rather than just a blue screen that they have to kind of imagine there's something there. I mean, you still get decent films with CGI, but I think there is something to be said for... Having everybody and everything in the scene, so that you can interact with it and touch it, and just really have that sense of immediacy to it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, watching the the new Dark Crystal stuff was was so lovely, and uh, I would love to do stuff with that. I've I've at, I contemplated trying to do. I I started uh, developing an idea for a potential other sort of project that was that used puppetry uh, as a character. And I, am still very keen to try it out. It's, it's a whole other field. It's almost because it's again, a specialized f- sort of thing really that, uh, you got to figure out how to make it work. And the way I was looking at this particular character was quite a small character and so would need a nice mix between puppetry and CGI to be able to like fade away any puppet, uh, puppeteers and things. I think things are changing even more. I've recently been learning about, um, C- like CGI becoming sort of part of the process while in camera almost. Um, there's, there's even part of a company here in Cambridge that help work on this, which is like using gaming engines and stuff. It's a Unreal Engine from sort of the gaming world and, and are now able to almost beam this stuff through camera to, to, uh, the monitors and you can sort of see real time. I'm, I'm not sure if it's at a stage where the actors are able to do that. There was, I saw a, an amazing video where they had big LED screens that instead of green screen, you're, you're looking at essentially a big TV that is changing and adapting live in front of you. And that could add a, add a whole other element to things. But yeah, I remember I was a stand in on Gulliver's Travels Back in the day. And because you had giant Gulliver, you had, you know, a big pole with a, with a tennis ball on it. Um, and it, it's just, it's very hard to, to react off that. You, you, that real interaction, uh, can't really be beaten. And it is a shame to be, be losing that completely.
1: So this might be a great time to just ask you a bit about your Kickstarter and, uh, because this will be, um, this whole episode will be going out kind of halfway through, um, the, the Kickstarter to raise funds for the second season of Wren. Um, how have you found the process of crowdfunding?
3: Is it, is this the first time you've crowdfunded or? Um, no, we actually crowdfunded. I mean, to a certain degree, I, I've crowdfunded a bunch of my films, uh, even before, crowdfunding platforms like Kickstarter existed, um, born of hope. I started off self-funding it, um, and, and realized very quickly, I was not going to have the funds to be able to do it on my own. We made a little sort of video, uh, asking people if they want to, you know, help out to, to help out. And we had a donation button, PayPal donation button, and we had money kind of trickle in during the production that I was able to spend on the show, and I think over, I can't remember over over half half of the film was funded through donations, but uh, but not as sort of campaign like this this style. For Ren, uh, season one, we crowdfunded on Kickstarter and did, uh, did did very well, raising quite a lot of money at the time. And we also did a crowdfunder on Indiegogo for um the the sort of festival tour and things so we're back now on on Kickstarter pushing for new episodes of the show we have a lot of supporters we've been building support we want it to be fan supported and creator distributed so that um you know if if people like the show and they want to support it they're able to do so and in return we're able to deliver the show directly to them without paywalls or without having to sort of essentially sell the show to a bigger bigger a studio or something and lose any creative control over it. It would be nice to, to remain independent making the show for people so that it will only get cancelled really if people don't want to see it anymore, basically. I find crowdfunding can can be really tough. Uh, it can be kind of amazing to see everyone sort of band together. It really feels like the community is a part of it. One of the things that's really nice about it is this isn't us just making, like going off and making a show and then going, here you go, there's a show. It's like, it's a, a yeah, community effort, really. First season, you know, we had 500 plus people support the show financially and then almost the same again, really get involved in actually being in the show, whether that's helping to sew buttons on a costume or build the set um, or be an extra in it. There was hundreds of people working on the project, and this sort of project needs that many people. And so, uh, this is a nice way to include people who could be on the other side of the world, but they get to be a part of of this production and then see all the behind the scenes of how it comes together and be, yeah, be key in in making it all happen. And so, we're making it together as a group rather than just uh, me or whatever it's or our team it's it's the whole community together which is awesome
1: i kind of really feel like this is the future of diverse filmmaking because i mean as you were saying about you know having things stuck behind a paywall like having being at the mercy of Um, you know, platforms like Netflix turning around and saying, okay, we're just going to cancel it from, and nobody really knows why and if if it's some kind of political thing. Like, I really like the idea that people, if when they love a show that they can get kind of directly involved in that show. And I kind of feel like that's where, you know, all of our conversations that we have on this podcast about, you know, inclusion, about um, kind of embracing, different narratives, like if those narratives were more available to people to actually kind of experience directly and to kind of help produce. And we didn't feel like, you know, the idea of something like, cause sometimes films and television programs and the way that they're made and the, the celebrities that star in them can seem like, just a million miles away and that we have no kind of input at all fans don't have any input um so I really love this this kind of like this vision of um you know creating content that um, everyone can you know be involved in and maybe that will help to kind of broaden the the dialogue that we're kind of trying to promote here Thank you so much for coming along and talking to us. Um, I mean, if uh, there are any like fans of Ren uh, or Kate's indeed and Kate's any other work um, listening kind of right now, then um, would you like to tell them how best they can support the project?
3: The Kickstarter is live right now. So you can, the easiest way is probably just to go to Kickstarter and do a search for Ren or Ren episodes or Ren, the girl with the mark. The actual URL is kickstarter.com slash projects slash mythica slash Ren2. And uh, you can also check it out on rentheseries.com where we'll link to everything through that. Um, and there's some great rewards that we've got an offer to yeah, get involved, help us make more episodes of this show. And, um, and we can keep, keep making this, this awesome story. That sounds amazing. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> the Kickstarter is running until the 29th of February. Um, so, uh, if people want to back, they can, they can check it out and get involved. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan
0: Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsam. Please help us spread the word, subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.